Hey, Danny, since this is a special episode, do you want to try out hosting? Oh, absolutely. Let's see how this goes. Welcome to the Weird Sisters Podcast, your source for Discworld discussion. My name is Danny, and I'm the color of magic. Joining me is Manning, the smell of magic. She who spelled it dealt it. Huh? Huh? Get it? <laughs> this month, we're talking about the color of magic TV adaptation. So let's press play on the trivia section sent in by the secret extra sister from just off camera. Adapted and directed by Vadim Jean. John? Terry Pratchett's The Color of Magic marks the second time a Discworld story was adapted by British studio The Mob, the first being Hogfather. The production was filmed in Pinewood Studios, with location shoots along the bank of a Welsh river, the docks in Gloucester, the Guildhall Crypt in London, and the Royal Courts of Justice. The CGI and other effects were provided by the Soho-based group Fluid Pictures. Part 1 of the miniseries premiered on March 23, 2008, with Part 2 broadcasted on the following day. The full product was released on DVD and Blu-ray in November 2008 and lasts a total of 3 hours and 11 minutes. The 2000s certainly existed, didn't they? They sure did. Those were a thing that happened. We open on Great Atuin, the world turtle, as it swims through space. The narration leads directly from introducing the turtle to the island nation of Krull, where the astrozoologists are caught up in probing the mysteries of the turtle. Narrating this feature is Brian Cox, a prolific actor with a long list of voice acting credits. Discworld fans in particular might know him best as the voice of death in the Good Omens TV miniseries. Ah, good old death. I actually didn't really like him very much as that specific death. I think that he was giving way too much malice to the character in that. And Good Omen's death is a pretty casual dude. Perhaps that was me bringing too much of Discworld into my interpretation of what that character should be. Fair enough. So the Kroll astrozoologists want to know Atuin's sex, even if they can't reasonably answer when Terry Pratchett himself asks why it matters which in my opinion is an excellent meta-joke, and it was at this point where many of the old memories came rushing back. I believe I've said before that this series was my very first introduction to the disc. So it was, it was pretty interesting watching the show through the eyes of an adult and a child at the same time. You'd seen this as a kid? Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Yeah, long before I even knew what it was I was watching, so... I was uh, a bit misinformed about a lot of things. I didn't understand most of the jokes. So... The astrozoologists of Krull prepare for the expedition to determine Atuin's sex. But as one of the junior members points out, they'll have difficulty finding someone stupid enough to do it. Cut to Ankh-Morpork, where Two-Flower, the disc's first tourist, has just arrived. He looks out over the filthy city with wonder, taking in the squabbling, the slaughterhouses, and of course, Unseen University, the center of wizardry. Inside the university, the senior staff are holding a funeral for one of their former colleagues. Arch-Chancellor Weatherwax commiserates with a lower-ranking wizard named Trimon. This adaptation introduces Trimon much earlier than we meet him in the books, 
which is better for the narrative structure of this piece, and also means we get to see more of Tim Curry's performance. I don't know that Curry would have been my first choice to play Tryman, but the man always brings a lot of fun to whatever he's in. Definitely agreed. On this watch through, I was a little caught off guard because I had totally forgotten the Archchancellor's name. I had to look it up and yes, it is Galder Weatherwax and not just a fun name drop they put in to reference the other series. Although I'm almost certain my adolescent self thought that it was a title of a wizard instead of his name. It'd be a good title. You promoted to the rank of Weatherwax. Aha. Oh, a wizard versed in, in, uh, elemancy and I forget what the study of weather is called. Meteorology? Me yeah, that, meteorology. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say barometrics for some reason. Now, barometrics is something entirely different. I will consult Google after the recording. <laughs> the funeral begins, but is shortly interrupted by the arrival of a blundering fool of a wizard with many Z's, two of which are on his hat and the rest on his test results. Yes, it is the world's worst spellcaster, Rincewind, whose poor grades and general buffoonery mean that he's about to be expelled from Unseen University after a mere 40 years of study. Rincewind is played by David Jason, most famous for his role as Delboy in the series Only Fools and Horses. This is not Jason's first Discworld role. In the 2006 adaptation of Hogfather, he played Death's manservant, Albert. It's about at this point that I'd like to commend the costume designers and the people in charge of the little details on the sets and just everything about the series. For example, all the wizards wear red, but the ones you see most often are entirely distinct from each other, either in hair color, beard shape, and of course their hats and robe decor. Rincewind, of course, has the most stars on his robe and the fantasy equivalent of a bedazzled hat. And the two Zs. Can't forget the two Zs. Of course, they're iconic. So after his expulsion, Rincewind makes his way down to the harbor with the intent of throwing himself into the sea. His suicide attempt is diverted by the magic within him, much to the chagrin of death. Let's talk about death here. The costume is being worn by Marnix... Marnie? Uh, Marn X. Van de Broek, a physical performer of some renown. He was the werewolf in Prisoner of Azkaban, the silence in Doctor Who, and the shadow in the Inkheart movie. This is actually his return to the role of Discworld's death, having portrayed the character in the Hogfather adaptation. Marnix actually went on to play the character of Mr. Pump in the 2010 Going Postal adaptation, which we'll maybe get to at some point. Hopefully, that sounds fun. Hopefully after we've actually read Going Postal. <laughs> I'd assume so. Of course, I imagine that people are more excited about the voice provided by the legendary Christopher Lee, who first voiced the character in the 1997 animated adaptations of Weird Sisters and Soul Music. You could do an entire podcast about Lee's career, but suffice to say, you'd be hard-pressed to find a better, intimidating, deep voice. Love that man. But as for the character as he appears in this miniseries, this death is relatively faithful to the character in the book, The Color of Magic, which is slightly unfortunate since it definitely contradicts how he behaves in the rest of the series, and doubly so Hogfather. So I feel sorry for anyone who saw that movie as their introduction to Discworld and then came into this not knowing that it's a prequel. Yeah, luckily I haven't had that experience, but I 
I very nearly would have if we kept watching these movies. I'd consider that a bit of a blessing that, that I'm having this experience instead. It's very enjoyable. Despite his best efforts, Rincewind is alive to spot Two Flower leaving the harbor, followed by his sapient pearwood luggage. I was not a fan of how they gave the luggage human legs. I've been picturing something more like those carved wooden table legs you sometimes see, with the sort of lion's claw looking thing. Yeah, yeah, I, I wasn't entirely sure what you meant there, but yeah, definitely. That is a bit better than my imagining of extremely caffeinated millipede legs. How can I describe that? It's, I can really only describe that as if a millipede tried to gallop like a horse, but not cleanly at all. Like multiple sections trying to go at once. Hmm. Rincewind follows the luggage as it follows Two Flower into the Broken Drum Tavern, where our two leads meet. Two Flower is, of course, played by Sean Astin, famous for his role as Samwise Gamgee in the Lord of the Rings movies. Notably, Astin is not Asian, which the producers apparently claimed was a choice to avoid the Asian tourist stereotype. But. <sighs> Anyway, that's not a productive thing to complain about here, so... What I really like about the way they did Two Flower in this adaptation is how he looks like a visitor from our world, especially his Hawaiian shirt. They did change him to be able to speak Ankh-Morporkian, which we as the audience hear as English, so that the actors don't have to worry about what they're saying while they're performing. Hmm. They don't have to fight through a made-up language. Especially coming from Lord of the Rings, uh, uh, Aston's character didn't have any other language lines. Which, if you've seen Lord of the Rings trilogy, it really does juxtapose with their speaking of Two Flowers' native language in this series. That it sounds a lot like gibberish if you don't have the subtitles. I mean, yes, I imagine that was the point. True, fair enough, fair enough. I did appreciate that they, uh... Let him speak Ankh-Morporkian that uh, saved us a lot of trouble and was a pretty funny gag. In the drum, Two Flower unwittingly astonishes the Morporkians with his wealth. Rincewind warns Two Flower about this, which prompts Two Flower to hire the wizard as a guide, with four days' wages as an advance. Rincewind takes the money and flees, but is swiftly captured and brought before the patrician. This is one area where the filmmakers did take advantage of the adaptation format to improve on things from the book. The patrician there was not really a major presence, but here he's clearly modeled on Vetinari, right down to the little dog. Playing Vetinari is Jeremy Irons, who has a long and storied career, but I suspect that most of our audience know him as Scar from The Lion King. He does lend the patrician a clear air of vindictive authority and malicious calm that makes the character so enjoyable in later books. And the line, don't let me detain you, is a direct quote from Guards Guards. Honestly, the way that Irons plays the patrician is almost what I had been expecting for Tryman, which makes me wonder if the filmmakers had Tim Curry emphasize a slimy sleaze in his performance to make those characters feel more distinct from each other. Or, uh, Miss Curry is simply good at that role. He plays the sneaky villain archetype incredibly well, in my opinion. And Mr. Irons? Exceptional. So casually threatening, especially trying to intimidate another character while holding a little dog. Little waffles. 
it it speaks to his 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 acting prowess. I love that dog. It's adorable. But I entirely forgot that he was in this since I didn't know him at the time, and I know him best as Brom from Aragon, which at the granted at the time I was more than a little obsessed with that book series. <laughs> as you can probably tell from my upcoming dragon rant. Mm. The patrician instructs Rincewind to continue working as Two Flowers' guide, and to make sure that the tourist stays safe during his visit. This proves difficult, since Two Flowers' enormous wealth has attracted the attention of the various guilds of Ankh-Morpork, including the thieves, the assassins, and the merchants. Rincewind takes Two Flower away from the brawl, and into the city, which Two Flower captures on his picture box. And is incidentally the return of the real MVP of Two Flower's arc, the picture imp. So, when you say return... It re return from the book series, is what I mean by that, but yes, this is his first appearance. Poor guy goes through so much. So much. <laughs> Shortly thereafter, our two leads flee when Ankh-Morpork catches fire, for reasons that are at least partially their fault. They get separated in the woods and end up finding their way to the Wormberg, an upside-down mountain whose magic allows one to conjure dragons through the power of imagination. Waking up to ash and dust. I'm not going to continue singing. <laughs> it took me a second there to get that. Along the way, Rincewind acquires a talking magic sword that bullies him into heroic behavior, as one does. This includes fighting the dragon lady, Liesa. Liesa is played by Karen David, an actress who has done reasonably well since this production. She played Princess Isabella in Gallivant, uh, Jasmine in Once Upon a Time, and Emma Tigg in Legacies, among a few other roles. Her fight scene with Rincewind in the Wormberg was described as the most choreographed sequence in the film, and she apparently pulled several stomach muscles during the filming, so, like, kudos to her to, for powering through. I mean, if they were actually doing some of those shots upside down, most notably what what comes to mind most notably is uh, when Rincewind is hanging from her arm and she's still upside down on that beam. If you notice, if you look at it, her legs are bent like very hard. So all that weight is in her legs and her abs, which I doubt was which I believe was had to have at least been partially CGI. I think more wire work, at a guess. Still impressive. The visual adaptation also highlights for me a form of character design I find incredibly interesting. It's not often you see equally sexualized costumes outside of all the characters dressing conservatively or casually. In the Wormberg, though, both the men and Liesa are all wearing the same highly revealing faux leather shorts and chest piece. At least the saddles keep their legs from rubbing against dragon scales. Although, Liesa has the most screen time of the dragon folk, she is treated to a few appraising camera angles. I will admit, however, an argument can certainly be made for the half-body shots and use of lighting reflecting Rincewind's literal viewpoint focusing on her, or when she's standing over him. Yeah, still, like, could have been better. I actually had to, uh, I went back through those scenes as I was, um, thinking about that note just to, just to double check, and a lot of her camera shots are pretty tasteful, like, they're, it's, um, the way the lighting and such is guides your eyes up to her face, 
or to her, the movement of her arm while she's swinging the sword rather than um, anything else. But there are a few, like, it pans down towards the sword, which gives you a full torso shot, etc., etc. Though for the most part pretty tasteful, in my opinion. Liesa manages to defeat Rincewind and sends him falling off the mountain. But he's saved by Two-Flower, who is able to imagine a dragon of his own, and together they fly away. Ha has Imagine Dragons done a song about flying? Nope, that's, um, the fat rat. I believe you. The, the, I, th I think it's the fat rat. Let me just double check that really quick. That's entirely necessary. Well, I don't want to, yep. <laughs> it's a really good song. It's cute. Okay. We have a point here where I'm certain I said it in our first episode. The child watching this was devastated. I hadn't picked up on much of the story, and all I saw was someone who had a dragon giving that dragon away for reasons I did not understand. Like, the dragon people were so cool, why would he want to leave them? I get it now, of course, but my point stands. Two Flowers' thrill at riding a dragon overtakes what little common sense he has. The tourist pulls an Icarus and tries to fly too high, although in this case it's less the heat of the sun and more the absence of atmosphere that proves a problem. He passes out from lack of oxygen, and he and Rincewind fall into the sea. Back at Unseen University, Trimon has been assassinating his way up the chain of command, as well as intimidating the librarian into compliance. The librarian is played by Nicholas Tennant, who was in Hogfather as Corporal Nobbs. The fact that he gets turned into an orangutan is foreshadowed with slightly less subtlety than an atomic bomb. <laughs> Inside the orangutan suit is Richard DaCosta, who also puppeteers the luggage during its non-CG scenes. Should I keep all the puns in this? If you like. <laughs> okay. The turns of phrase may have had a better effect on people who didn't know what was coming, if I recall correctly, I thought it was because of his monkeying around that the wild magic turned him into one. On this watch through, though, I was going a little bananas because they put in those hints and we already knew. Now, Tryman has killed several senior wizards in the pursuit of his ambition, but his cunning finds a difficult opponent in the Arch-Chancellor, Galder Weatherwax. James Cosmo, who plays Arch-Chancellor Weatherwax, has been in the business since 1966 and rung up an impressive filmography, including appearances in Highlander, Braveheart, Game of Thrones, and, more recently, His Dark Materials. I can't wait. I have not finished watching His Dark Materials. I cannot wait. I love that series. <laughs> Triman's contraptions could give Wily Coyote a run for his money, and Weatherwax's blasé responses were incredible. Particularly the sharp cutaway from the most recent attempt, a classic anvil drop, into his use of that very same anvil to fuel the next scene. The Arch-Chancellor reveals at this point to Tryman that Rincewind has in his head one of the eight great spells from the Octavo, the most important spellbook in the world, and he attends to get it back using a magic arrow. Speaking of Rincewind, he and Two Flower have been carried by the sea out to the rim, where they are caught in the circumfence, a barrier set up to collect everything that would otherwise fall off the disc. Looking out over the edge of the world, they turn their eyes to the stars, and the rainbow cast out by the water falling off the disc. Rincewind points out to Two Flower the eighth color, Octarine. 
the titular color of magic. This scene doesn't really contribute much to the plot, but I really appreciate it as a tender moment of companionship between Two Flower and Rincewind. They really did pay some extra attention to them. It was it was very nice. It felt it felt real in a slightly different way from the book. And with as much as they put into the film already, it's entirely understandable that they simplified several scenes at this point. But I was partially hoping to see the hydrophobe disc and what they would do with that. From their little island, Two Flower and Rincewind make their way to Krull, just in time for the launch of the mission to determine Atuin's sex. The Krullians plan to sacrifice our heroes to gain the favor of the gods, but they disguise themselves as the astronauts. Cosmonauts? Astronauts. In the story, it's Chelonauts, because they're venturing to the turtle, but they're functionally astronauts. While attempting to escape, Rincewind and Twoflower blunder into the launch site, to the roar of the crowd and the exposition of the arch-astronomer. The astronomer is played by Nigel Planner, or Planer, who you may recall as the narrator for many of the Discworld audiobooks. Uh, he also played Neil in The Young Ones, narrated 103 episodes of Grizzly Tales for Gruesome Kids, and had a cameo as Mr. Snidey in Hogfather, plus various roles in the Discworld computer games. I really hope that he's not playing a character that's supposed to be Asian in this, because the mustache does sort of imply that to me. Hmm, a bit of his ornamentation, too. It would be not great. But considering the rest of Krull, it's maybe not. It's a uh, not much is really not much is really shown that it's uh not much is really shown about it. There we go. The Krullians realize what has happened, and Rincewind and Two Flower hide in the spaceship, which they accidentally set to launch. They are yeeted off the disc. The Octavo itself casts a powerful spell, thus changing the world so that Atuin does a barrel roll to catch them. Nice. While that happens, Tryman pushes Arch-Chancellor Weatherwax off the university roof in order to take his place as Arch-Chancellor. Roll credits. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Part two begins as Rincewind and Twoflower fall back onto the disc. The spells of the Octavo reach out to Wins... Winsrind. Ah, the Spoonerism, Rincewind. <laughs> The spells of the Octavo reach out to... I almost did it again. <laughs> reach out to rinse wind. <laughs> I'll, I'll take it from further back. That might be easier. Part two begins as Rincewind and Two Flower fall back onto the disc. The spells of the Octavo reach out to Rincewind and inform him that he needs to return to the university so that all eight spells can be said together once Atuin reaches the red star that has appeared in the sky. So Rincewind and Twoflower begin making their way towards Ankh-Morpork, but along the way they stumble into a druid camp and see a young woman, Bethan, being led to the sacrificial altar. Bethan is played by Laura Haddock, who played Lucretia Donati in the TV series Da Vinci's Demons, and Peter Quill's mom in the Guardians of the Galaxy movies. I did not know that. Her performance here I would describe as perfectly serviceable. She did, um, excited fangirl pretty well. Swooning fangirl? Yeah. Two Flower interrupts the proceedings and is probably about to be torn to shreds by the druids when he is rescued by an elderly man with an eye patch and no teeth. 
it's none other than the disc's most legendary hero, Cohen the Barbarian. Ba-barbarian, ba-ba-barbarian, Cohen the Barbarian, he's really old. <laughs> uh, Cohen is played by David Bradley, probably best known as Filch in the Harry Potter movies. Cohen handily defeats the druids, but they are soon beset by wizards from Unseen University trying to recapture the great spell in Rincewind's head. This is where we get one of my favorite lines in the whole adaptation, where one wizard tells Rincewind, We could do this the easy way, or the very easy way. It's not even that original, but it just makes me smile. This whole thing is riddled with ridiculosity. That's not a real word, but it is now. It's beautiful. It's also um another simplification here, but I think it's one that flows pretty nicely from the druids right into the wizard attack. Though the action movie slow-mo bit did feel kind of jarring at, once it started, but the Star Wars reference that happened immediately beforehand kind of helped by uh, bringing the viewer, or me at least, to a slightly more modern mindset. They jump genres uh, pretty frequently in this, I've noticed. At least, like, references. Mm-hmm. Sci-fi, buddy cop, standard action film, etc. Thanks to Cohen and the general incompetence of the university wizards, our heroes manage to escape. But Two Flower leaps in front of a spell to protect Rincewind, and the magic partially kills the tourist. To get him back, Cohen takes them all to a necromancer, who gives Rincewind a potion that sends him to where Two Flower has gone, the House of Death. There, Rincewind quickly finds Two Flower and brings him back to the mortal realm. This whole Death's House section is a scene that you didn't. that was absent from your copy of The Light Fantastic, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, um. If I recall, it was the entire druid section up to after they get Two Flower back and are traveling with uh, Cohen and Bethan. I did get Cohen's introduction, though, when he's talking about things that make uh, life worth living. Which is, of course, a direct reference to Conan the Barbarian, mostly the movie. Toilet paper is especially real now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> My house was actually out of it for, like, entirely out of it for several days. My condolences. It was alright, though. It was alright. Meanwhile, Tryman has been trying to get the university organized, putting together meetings with agendas and such. He has also decided that, since the wizards failed to capture Rincewind, he should hire a hero to do it. Herena, the henna-haired Haridan, played by Liz May Bryce, is one of the areas where I feel this adaptation falls a little short. Bryce is not really given a lot to do, since Herena's role is cut down even from the meager amount she had in the book. And the costume designer gave her some prominent cleavage, despite the fact that her pivotal gag is being sensibly dressed in contrast to most fantasy art. It's a shame that there are so few female characters in this story and none of them get to really do or be particularly interesting. And that a 2008 movie is in some ways less progressive than a book from 1986. Obviously some stuff had to be cut, I just wish it hadn't been her. Hmm. Let me just uh, look up really quick because if I remember she was wearing a, a, a corset pretty tight. 
at least it wasn't like over the top cleavage if her uh, if i recall correctly and she was wearing like a a well-laced corset then it's uh functioned pretty well as armor at least once two flower has done some fanboying about cohen rincewind tries to explain the importance of them getting back to ankh morpork when two flower tries to insist that they continue their tour Rincewind lies to him about the solstice celebrations, and that they'll be able to stop at the temple of Bel-Shamharoth along the way. However, our heroes are captured by Herenna and her cronies. When they all take shelter in a cave along the way, Rincewind's lies are revealed, and drive a wedge between him and Twoflower. Shortly thereafter, it's revealed that the cave is in fact the mouth of a very old troll, and the party scatters in the panic once it wakes up. I do like how this adaptation made the reveal of Old Grandad, the troll, a lot smoother and cleaner than it was in the book. The scene has a lot more punch to it here. I did uh, greatly enjoy the um, the running away from Old Grandad. You have this big CG troll with movements incredibly similar to the uh, robots at the end of Spy Kids 3D. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And then you have Rincewind and Two Flower just galloping sideways away because their hands are still tied together. It was like combination flashbacks to enjoyable childhood movies with flashbacks to gym class at school. (laughs) (laughs) Two Flower and Rincewind fight over which direction to go, but are soon recaptured by Herenna before she gets defeated by Cohen. Reunited, our four heroes soon return to Ankh-Morpork, where fear over the Red Star has driven the populace into a frenzy of anti-wizard mob rule. I wonder what, uh, Vetinari has to say about that. Though he isn't exactly in control as much in this adaptation, since it's from the first book rather than when he's more developed. Well, second book. They're basically one book. Mm -hmm. The first story. When they arrive at the university... They find that Tryman has stolen the Octavo and imprisoned the other wizards. Rincewind frees the ungrateful faculty shortly before Tryman turns all the senior wizards to stone. Together, true, true, together, true flower. He's a true flower. <laughs> together, two flower and Rincewind defeat Tryman and return the spells to the Octavo so that Rincewind can read them out and cause the Red Star to hatch, facilitating the birth of a dozen New World turtles. Babies! They were so cute. They were. This moment where Rincewind is staring lovingly at Two Flower fiddling with his camera could definitely inspire some romantic fanfic. Mm. Meanwhile, I was making several exclamations about the uh, the baby turtles that my mother was like, I have to see this, and I, run, I had to run the scene back for them hatching so that she could watch too. Aww. What did she think? She, she thought they were adorable. It's, uh, twice, actually, while watching the series, I managed to draw her from the other room to come see a, a scene or two, or three. <laughs> so, hooray for cheesy movies! With the Discworld saved, and Bethan and Cohen off to get married, Rincewind decides to re-enroll at Unseen University, and Two Flower decides it's time for him to go home, leaving the luggage with Rincewind as a parting gift. As the film ends, we return to Krull, where one of the astrozoologists asks if this means that Atuin is female, to which Terry Pratchett says it's all a question of perspective. All right. Well, obviously there were some major changes in bringing this story to the screen. 
A lot of things were cut out, most notably the visit to Belshamroth's temple, and a few characters, most notably the lady from the whole gods playing dice with the universe bit. The whole gods playing dice with the universe bit entirely. Yeah, yeah. We never found out why they needed to be sacrificed either. It was implied, though. For the most part, I'd say that the changes make the story a lot tighter and more focused. And it's definitely the same story overall. Many of the film's weaker points actually are, in my opinion, founded on trying to stick a little too closely to the text. Such as a couple lines that are a little bit awkward coming out of characters' mouths as opposed to being in the narration. And there are places, especially in the second half, where the plot meanders a little, and some subplots get dropped without a proper resolution. On the more technical side, the CGI is really not great. <laughs> but that's also a recurring gag in the series, that the magic canonically looks like cheap special effects. So I'd say it also just adds a certain degree of goofy charm, since none of this is supposed to be taken seriously at the base level. As a whole, this... This movie or this uh, two-part series? It's a movie. Well, yeah, it is a movie, you're right. It was right up my alley. Like, I am a huge fan of just good, bad movies, if that makes much sense. My my friends uh, love to get together and just tear to shreds uh, the Aragon movie. <laughs> um, we We like watching Clue and Oscar and... Just like, basically, I was able to uh, tempt a friend to watch The Color of Magic with me simply by listing off the names Tim Curry, Christopher Lee, and Jeremy Irons. Yeah. This is an all-star cast. It is. It's wonderful. And they looked like they had so much fun, like, acting. There, there was a kind of heart in it that you don't get with films where the actors aren't terribly pleased. Similar heart with uh, Spy Kids, in my opinion. All right. I'd say overall... Not amazing, but not bad. Perfectly fine. Worth a rewatch with the correct company. A solid adaptation. A solid adaptation of very goofy, half-baked material. Mm -hmm. On to the wrap-up. All right. If you enjoyed hearing us talk about something only tangentially related to the Discworld novels, consider supporting us on Patreon, where we have a stretch goal to start doing bonus episodes when and if we reach a certain threshold. And if you support us for as little as a dollar of the month, you're eligible for the patron shout-out, where we thank a lucky patron chosen at random. This month, the shout-out goes to Jessica, who is supporting us at the Wizard Tier. To make sure you don't miss out on more Weird Sisters content, be sure to follow us on social media, Twitter, Facebook, and Tumblr. Plus, we have a Discord you can join if you'd like to chat directly with us and fellow listeners. Thank you, as always, to Willow Carter for our theme music, to my co-host for chatting with me, and to you for listening. Next month, we'll be back to our main series with soul music. Until then, the, the turtle, turtle moves. moves.